The topics on today's show may be distressing if you or someone you know have been affected by sexual abuse. You can contact the Cork Sexual Violence Centre on free phone 1800 496 496, text 087 The hours are Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm. The address is 5 Camden Place, Cork City, and you can email at info at sexualviolence.ie. Welcome to this week's installment of Keeping Track. My guest today is one of the co-founders and the CEO of the Sexual Violence Centre Cork, which is a non-profit community organisation that was set up on International Women's Day back in 1983 and has been providing services to victims of sexual violence in Cork City and County for 40 years now. In 2000, she set up OSS Cork, the Domestic Violence Information Resource Centre, which provides support to all adult victims of domestic violence and their concerned family members, friends, colleagues and others. She's the author of Sexual Violence in Ireland, the Criminal Justice System, a Guide for Victims. She's a member of the Irish National Observer on violence against women. She has a national diploma in the psychology of criminal behaviour and a master's in women's studies. She's one of the driving forces behind Safe Gigs Ireland, which works with venues, artists, staff, crew, festivals, promoters, security and gig goers. In 2019, University College Cork awarded her with the inaugural Equality Award for her role in promoting equality, diversity and inclusion. And in 2022, she was presented with the Freedom of Cork. She's here today to talk about her life as a crusader for the rights of sexual violence victims and also to play some music that is close to her cause. It is, of course, the wonderful and magnificent Mary Crilly. Thank you for having me. Before we get stuck into the interview, do you want to give us your first tune that you've picked out especially for us? I think I've always been a fan of Nina Simone. And I think like we've all had our ups and downs. Um, and I think, you know, and I've had my ups and downs over 40 years here and in my own life trying to rear two daughters kind of on my own. So the one that we're really like is kind of I ain't got life. You know, I ain't got no, I've got my life. In other words, like no matter what happens, I've got my lungs, I've got my eyes, I've got my ears, I've got my nose, I've got me. And that's something nobody can take. So that would be my first one. Ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweater, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no bed, ain't got no mind, ain't got no mother, ain't got no culture, ain't got no friends, ain't got no schooling, ain't got no love, ain't got no name. That was Nisa Simone with I Got Life, and that was picked from my guest today, Mary Crilly. I just have a few simple questions to start. Okay. Um, I know you're from Dublin. Could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Cork? I, mean, I think I was from the era like where people got married around 20 or 21, and I met somebody, and he got a job in Cork, and we moved down to Cork. That was It's simple now. The relationship didn't last too long. I had two daughters from it, but that was how I ended up in Cork. Like, I'm in Cork... Um, over 40 years, nearly 45 years now, because I moved down when I was 20, yeah. and I'm 68 now, so I'm longer in Cork than I ever was in Dublin. What were you doing before you got involved with the Sexual Violence Centre? I was at home um, with my two daughters. You know, I did a really kind of poor Leaving Cert. I went from the school I was in, didn't do Leaving Cert. You know, that's the area I came from, where the expectation was that none of us would even need a Leaving Cert or go for Leaving Cert. And, but I found a college, it was about 40 minutes walk, and I went, I think I just wanted to drag things out a bit, even though I didn't find school really good. 
And so I joined the civil service afterwards. I became a clerical assistant. And then when I moved to Cork, I was working in the old labour exchange, which is over there um, in the Keys near mm. the College of Commerce over there. How did you get involved with the Cork Rape Crisis Centre? I was living in a big housing estate and there was a neighbour of mine who had been involved in a group that was getting together looking at the idea of setting up a rape crisis and she asked me to join. And initially I thought... No, I've never been a part of any group. You know, I haven't worked out in my head about what I want to do or anything. I didn't have the theory of anything. I didn't have a clue. And, you know, looking back, I think she maybe saw something in me, but I think everybody else in the organisation there had been to college or their sisters or their that kind of quality of people, they're amazing. So maybe they wanted somebody else who wasn't, mm. you know, who was maybe more working class or maybe had a different look at things. But back then I would have given myself six months and even that, I wouldn't have thought I'd do six months because I was there. Like with two daughters, my family were in Dublin, I'd rarely see them. Mm. And not because they didn't want to come down, but 40 years ago, even getting trains down seemed like a huge deal, you know, to families, you know. So, um that's how I started. That's and I can't started. believe looking back that it's been 40 years. Yeah. And what were you doing initially when you started? Well, initially we started with the first nine months was in the key co-op. Mm. And that was just starting up. And we had um, a filing cabinet and the phones in the filing cabinet. You know the filing cabinets where you have two doors on them and they open up and that's the phone was in there. Mm. And then the phone was locked away when we weren't using the room for that time. Mm. And the room was used for so many other things then in between. We were just there for nine months because... Um, even though we were more than welcome there, it wasn't suitable. Because I think even 40 years ago, for anybody to go into the key co-op um, was difficult, whether they were going in about their sexuality or whether they were going in for, you know, the organic veg or whatever else was there. It was very different. It was quite radical, like, back then. So um, we left after about nine months. We were raided when we were over there by the special branch. And it did come into the room where one of the councillors and one of the volunteers was on duty because they didn't know what was going on over there and what was it about. So we moved to McCurtain Street then. And we were renting McCurtain Street for a good 12 years before we found this building. When the Cork Rape Crisis Centre started out, it wasn't met with open arms by the Gardaí and by members of the church. This was at a time when marital rape wasn't illegal in this country. And the story goes, a senior member of the Guards came to your office to tell you you weren't welcome. He did. Now, yeah. if you think the senior members, like the last senior member, um, Barry McPolin, who retired recently, he's on the board, so things have changed. We get on really well with the top-level guards at this stage, but it was 30 years of chipping away, 30 years mm. of kind of keeping in there, because I always believe that if I fell out with them, well, then maybe um, victims who approach them mightn't get the treatment that they deserve. So you have to keep e egos out of it and just yeah. see, well, who are you doing this for? I want them to get the same treatment, whether they're coming with me or coming with somebody from the centre or on their own. You know, and that particular um, superintendent was... He had very strong views on a lot of issues. Like, it wouldn't happen now. Yeah. It really wouldn't. It wouldn't be as vocal. Why did Official Ireland treat you and the centre with such suspicion? What were they afraid I of, do you think? I think family values. I mean, everything back then was about the family. Even, you know, Cork did have a refuge. It was one of the first in the country. And even though they felt that it was unfortunate that we had one, it was something that happened within the family. You know, the, the guards and the clergy would talk to me and they'd say, it's unfortunate that the man you know, has to kind of let off steam in that kind of way. But it was in the family. But as regards young girls getting raped, the attitude was it's their own fault. Mm. And I remember even a doctor who did some examinations back then would say only whores get raped. So it was very much kind of whatever happened in the family happened in the family. Like you're still at the stage where Besborough was quite busy, where we'd be down in doing talk because there's young girls down there and young women down there where only a male... Um, relative could get them out which was outrageous and nothing happened to the boys who raped them or who abused them because it is rape because a lot of them were underage 
Nothing happened to them. It was the girls being blamed all the time for what was done to them. And the victim blaming still goes on. Yeah. I mean, that's what keeps me here, to try and um, chip away the victim blaming. It really does my head in. If you looked in from outer space and saw a young girl or a young boy getting raped and then somebody says it's their fault, you just can see it in black and white and see how could it be. But we tolerate it and we make excuses for the behaviour of certain guys. Um, how many women present weekly? To well, we'd have about 500 a year. We see women who are coming in because of stalking and they're coming in because of spiking because we have campaigns of stalking and spiking. And we all, always have women coming in who've been trafficked for sexual exploitation. So over the years, things have changed. Where initially, we thought we were setting up to help people through court. That was our first thing. And then in 1984, the first woman came in who had been raped as a child. And that was very different because um, if you think back then, there was no counselling programs available in UCC or CRT it just didn't exist yeah. you know if you needed some kind of help you'd be up in um, Our Ladies or in some other psychiatric institution which basically wasn't what they needed they needed other support but um, Holy Ireland and Silent Ireland just kind of kept them quiet about all this kind of stuff so it was different and then over the years we've changed what we do really looking at people who come in and what they need and they need very different things to, you know, what they needed back then. Is stalking become more prevalent with social media now, or do you think, was it always there when you I started I think out? it was always there, but it is more with social media. And I think we just did a stalking report with UCC. We commissioned them to help us out with a stalking report, which really showed that 50% of those who are stalked don't necessarily know the perpetrator very well. Like, there is a myth that it's only um, ex-boyfriends or ex-husbands who do it, but 50% of them are saying... They knew the person either through work or they vaguely knew them or see them around town or knew them in other, other kinds of ways. So that's very telling. And stalking can be quite subtle. It can be extremely violent and extremely in your face, like, but it can be quite subtle. Like I know a couple of young girls came in recently who said this guy, um, they live in a cul-de-sac and really they're happy where they're staying. And he drives up and down every evening and stops outside the house. Now they feel they've nothing to grasp on, but there is legislation in place now to, since last week oh, about yeah. stalking which is kind of very welcome because once something is down on paper once something is there in legislation people then have the confidence to go to the guards and say look I know this is a crime I really need you to help me What did the legislation bring in? What did it change? Well it made it a crime for one before this um, it came between lots of different kind of pieces of legislation but it wasn't down as stalking the word stalking wasn't written in it as a crime there can also be um, civil things that can happen you can bring somebody to court for it you know, without it being a criminal case, you can take somebody to court, which yeah. they couldn't do before. It has to be all tested and tried in court, but at least it's an eye-opener. But when you think it's taken 40 years to do it, you know, if you think even in 1992, um, rape and marriage, up to 1990, rape and marriage wasn't a crime. I mean, that's outrageous. Sometimes when I say it out loud, I think, God, you mean 1892, but I don't. I mean... For the first um, 10 years that we were here, women would come in who'd been raped and married and we could say, well, it's not a crime. I find that horrifying. And horrifying, like I know Vincent Brown, in fairness, when he used to be on TV, he was always going on about the extent of um, sexual violence in this country and that we're not up in arms about it. And I think the CSO brought up figures recently saying 40% of people in Ireland are raped or sexually abused. One in five girls in this city is going to be raped or sexually abused. It's outrageous that we're not... Um, in the streets every day trying to do something about it. And what I find really um, despairing about it is that we can do something because the minority of guys aren't doing this, but the ones that are doing it are consistent and will tell their pals about it. They're not doing it in, in 
They're doing it in plain sight, not hiding it. They will, you know, probably won't say to their friends, I raped her last night, but they will say, you'd want to have seen her the state of her last night, I really had her and she can't remember it. And their friends will maybe think, God, that's awful, you shouldn't do that, but they do nothing about it. And, you know, it's young guys need to start really calling their friends out. Because I can guarantee you, if he said, I was with your sister last night and she can't remember anything, they would think very differently. And that's what gets me about sexual violence. We can get rid of it, we can chip away at it, but as long as the guys decide, I'm in a pack here, I'm not going to call out my friend, nothing's going to change. All right, okay, we just take another song before we move on to our next topic. Well, I think when we're on this kind of depressing kind of part, I might go for Private Dancer because we have, um, like Tina Turner would have been one of my favourites and I would have seen her in Dublin a number of times in Crow Park and a few other places. But I know the song Private Dancer really gets to me because um, we would have been involved in campaigns to um, look at kind of women in prostitution and look at why they should be criminalised and we're really in favour of criminalising the men you know, and trying to get rid of it, not kind of legalise it, because if you legalise it, you're legalising the pimps and there's no way around it because that's what you're doing with all the um, liberal talk that goes on about legalising it. Legalising it just makes it um, okay to rape a woman or a young boy or to say, do you know, if they need money for whatever, it's okay for them to go out and sell their body. And as far as I'm concerned, it isn't. So Private Dancer, I think when she sings a song, just gets through to my heart because it really is about... This is the reality. It's quite a sad song, but this is the reality for so many people. Well, the men come in these places And the men are all the same
That was a private dancer by Tina Turner, and that was picked by my guest this morning, Mary Crilly. Mary, I wanted to ask you: Is it all age groups, um, or do you see certain trends of a certain demographic presenting from time to time? We see from fourteen up. I mean, there there is a demographic of maybe students, you know, aged between say eighteen and twenty five. That would be maybe forty two percent would be that. And then we have older women and older men, and we have um, quite a good few um, between fourteen and eighteen. Now, I think we go out to schools a lot, and that's why they kind of know, and you probably know recently we're doing more festivals with our kind of safe gigs campaign. But I think for years we've had um, school kids in here doing different things, we're just doing campaigns just to get them in in a different way that if they ever needed help, they'd know where to go. And, you know, for me it's about um, normalising the fact that this unfortunately happens, but you can get supported, you can get help. And I suppose for me it's about, you know, if it does happen, don't blame yourself, you know, and get rid of the victim blaming. So Wednesday afternoon here we have um, our, we have three art therapists and we've had to get a room upstairs. We have one art therapy room, we've had to renovate another room, make make two rooms into one room for the art therapy because that's what the kids want. They don't want to sit in front of someone on a chair and a table between them. They'll be gone like dust. So the art therapy room is their favourite where they can do clay, they can do painting, they can do writing, they can do wherever they want, but it's bigger. They can kind of walk around and not kind of cut on a one-to-one, which older people really like because they can just sit down and plant and think things through. But for younger people, they become for dust. And Wednesday afternoon is nearly restricted for that age group because they keep coming in. And I, I feel angry when I see them. And then I also feel um, fair play to them. They have the life ahead of them. Because if young girls coming in, maybe 18, 19 or older, and they say, look, I have a really nice guy and I want to be with him, but I can't be um, close to him because of what happened to me. And he's nothing like the guy that raped me. He doesn't look like him. He's nothing like him. But her body's reacting in a way of kind of, don't touch me. And that's why they come in. They come in because they want to move on with their lives in whatever way they can. People come to the centre and I know you have the art therapy classes. What's the day-to-day look like in here? Today's day looks like, say tomorrow we'll have maybe five councillors in. We have part-time councillors. Our funding at this stage is the lowest in the country. We get about um, 370000 Now that's to pay for everything. That's to pay for me. Somebody in the office, the five, one full-time and five part-time councillors who are on help board rates because they're entitled to be and they need to be because you have to be sure that they have their accreditation, they have their qualifications and that they'll be here kind of next week. So day-to-day will be, they'll all have four clients each tomorrow. Um, so if there's five in, that could be 20 people in tomorrow. And then you might have other phone calls coming in or somebody who rings in and says, I really need to talk to somebody today. So that'll happen. Um, and that's really the way the week works out. Monday wouldn't be the same. Monday we kind of keep quiet because um, I'm aware that there's so many bank holidays. So if somebody say it was coming in for a year, three months of that has gone with bank holidays. You know, the bank holiday Mondays. So Monday's kind of kept for initial appointments, for doing other things. There are councillors in here, but it wouldn't be the busiest kind of day. And all services are free. All services are free, yeah. yeah. Now, we do restrict it. We don't do... Years ago, we'd see people for two years or more. We can't do that anymore with the waiting list speed. Plus, I'm finding it different. Like, years ago, people did want long-term counselling. Now they won't. They don't want to quick fix it, but they don't want to be here forever. They want um, maybe just to kind of get to a place where they can manage and then maybe come back another year or two, but not kind of keep going for ongoing therapy. So the average length of time people will be here at this stage might be nine months, six or nine mm. months or something. Have things improved in terms of the numbers of people presenting, or do you think the issues have always stayed the same, only now, thanks to you and the work at the centre, people aren't afraid to look for help? I think what's changing, which is really great, is that people have been believed. Yeah. You know, I mean, we always believed them. And like quite a lot of older men coming in, especially after COVID, like who were working in the building trade or different kind of trades, who were always kept busy. 
and would rather keep their minds busy, maybe abused as a child. Um, and then during COVID, everything kind of crashed down on them. So they've been kind of coming in. Um, and other young girls who would often say that they weren't believed are now saying they were believed because like, the average person would be um, raped by somebody they know, nearly always somebody they know. So if there's somebody in a, a pub and he's looking really awkward and you're kind of looking at him and saying he's really strange looking, maybe he just feels uncomfortable. Maybe he isn't the best to socialise. Maybe he doesn't have the best chat lines that others have, you know, as the entitled male who is the average rapist. Um, it's always somebody, you know, always somebody. And an average could be like, say, you know, uh, parents who rang the other day about their daughter who had been raped by their son's best friend. They had no doubt that he raped her. That wasn't within doubt. They knew, they knew exactly what he'd done. And he was 19. But what you keep getting is... Um, He's a lovely little boy. He's a lovely lad. I'm really fond of the lad. He's a lovely lad. And you know what? Um, I don't think he realised what he did. No, I really feel like exploding when I hear that. Because he did know what he did. If men didn't know what they were doing, it'd be happening out in the street. He did know what he was doing. And most of them will do it to somebody very close to them because they know the likelihood of them reporting is limited because either they lose friends or they feel they won't be believed, or they feel like this is going to be too much hassle, or they feel like my mother is just gone through cancer, or my grandmother just died, or they take all this on board, and the person who has raped them knows this. Or another would be um, a young girl who came in who said to me that she'd been brought home by a guy she knew quite well, and he raped her in the car. No, I have to say the majority of guys will bring you home and make sure you get home safe but the ones who want this power and control will continue. And she ran in home. She was just horrified and shocked about it because it takes a while to wake up and think, oh, my God, this really happened. Um, and the next morning, her mother came up to her and she said, you must be in an office state last night. There's a lovely young lad downstairs. I'm making him tea and toast because he said he brought you home and you left his bag in his car. The least you can do is come down and have a cup of tea with him. That's how rapists are. Never remorse. Rarely, or any kind of um, whatever. And he's just doing that to test the ground to see if anything has been said. Like, I know the average person, you know, is reported to the guards or in court for traffic violations. You can see them, like, really anxious. I've been in court so many times with people who are accused of sexual crimes and they don't seem to bother them or flicker or anything. They just strut around. Do you see a lot of repeat offenders? I don't see a lot, but I know about them because I'd know um, the stories, the same stories would be the same as, as they come in here, but some girls might decide not to report her, but I'd know the name and I'd know I've heard of him already. I know about him. Unfortunately, if they don't report, there's nothing we can do. So how many cases that present here would actually end up in court? Well, I think on, on the whole, on average, only 10% of the cases. Okay. And people don't want to go to court? No, but even the majority that don't want to go to court, the DPP doesn't take the cases. Because, I mean, it's, you're back to kind of the issue of consent. Even though the legislation changed a couple of years ago to define consent, it's still his word against another. It's still him saying, she was all on for it. Um, she's saying, I wasn't. And this is what happened. And maybe being in the stand, like on average, a girl could be in the stand for a day or a day and a half and really be interrogated. He might never go on the stand. That's his choice. And he'll know everything that's going on. He'll have seen every statement. She'll have seen nothing by her own statement. And she'll be interrogated to high hell and back. Like if I was to look, if you were to say to me, what's changed over 40 years? I'd say, well, the guards massively. And those protective services units in 
nearly every division and they just deal with sexual crime and they've made a massive difference. The courts, I was in court last week with someone. I could have blinked and be back 40 years. Nothing had changed. Nothing. Bad are not wearing the wigs much anymore, but nothing else had changed. Nothing. So say if someone presents here and they want to go to court, so from presenting to here to actually ending up in court, how long would that take now, do you think? Two, three years. Two, three years. Minimum. Yeah. I mean, the cases in the last week took eight years. What about two or three years? But what we would do, say if somebody came in, um, we'd put them in touch with the Protective Services Unit in Langley Street or the Manmere from I or wherever they're in, and I really would encourage them to talk to the Protective Services Unit, even without writing a statement or signing anything, just to get it out and to get the advice of a guard about what they'd like to do and then take it from there, because at least then... You've tried one route, you have your options open and you've talked and then you can make a decision. Because a lot of girls and a lot of young guys who've been raped are, will I want it, will I want it, I really want to. But I'm worried about the going to court, I'm worried it doesn't go to court. I'm worried about falling out with people, I'm worried about all sorts of things. And I have seen it over and over again where the perpetrator in any kind of organisation, whether it's school, whether it's university, whether it's an activism organisation where the perpetrator stays put, and people rally around them. It's a bit like, um, I think the thing is that the victim asks you to do something. Silently, they're asking you to support them, whereas the perpetrator asks you to do nothing. Perpetrator is really saying, stay quiet there now and do nothing. So you collude all along the line with him, and that's what I've seen happening. And if somebody else says to me, you know, well, we don't want to get in the middle of it, I'd say, well, you are in the middle of it. You know, you are. If both have talked to you, you are in the middle, so you need to either really step back away or or make a call because, you know, you can't sit in a hedge when it's to do with sexual violence, if you know more than than you're saying. Okay, let's take another break and listen to another song that you've picked for us. Well, I think um, I love moving, I love dancing. I love kind of, um, I think, you know, and freedom of the city and that kind of stuff when we had um, music on it. And I'll always go for Glory Gaynor, I Will Survive, because I think, you know, for lots of women and men, they kind of... Um, like the song, it means something that means, because everybody I think in their life has gone through some kind of trauma, or some kind of awful stuff. And I think to survive in this world, you've gone through stuff, but it really is about, yeah, no matter what, we'll survive.
that was Glory Gaynor with I Will Survive. Um, that was picked by my guest today, Mary Crilly. Uh, Mary, I wanted to ask you, do you see many men presenting at the centre? We do, more and more all the time. I mean, I think it's still only 15 to 20% of men kind of coming in and most of them are abused to children but some are raped as adults I think you'll find maybe organisations like one in four would see quite a lot of men but I think they set up to see men who'd been um, initially abused in institutions because men who would have come to us who were, who were um, abused by priests or institutions wanted to go to an agency where there was somebody in the agency from the clergy or from you know, the help board who would hear the story or where they knew it would get back to them. Like, I know there was um, another big organisation who just dealt with um, those who were abused by clergy in Dublin and they had about 400 councils dotted around the country and around England and around America. So that's what happened to the majority of men. But we do see quite a lot and more and more and more and more older men coming in. And the older men are from institutions? From no, the older men who come in now have been raped as children, either in school or in sports clubs or maybe raped as adults. But, um, you know, you could have young, a lot of the young boys coming in, might be 15, 16, might be um, looking at their sexuality and might have arranged to meet who they thought was a 16-year-old and then you have a 30-year-old man waiting for them. And then they feel um, humiliated, they feel stupid, they've been raped, they feel they can't even tell their parents that they've you know, met up with someone. Like, it's like this is what perpetrators are like. They, they nearly patrol place to see who they can get. And they really don't seem to care that um, in that one assault, they've ruined somebody's life. Mm. Like, I'm not saying people can't get their life back on track, but it'll never be like it was. Mm. And these, and this is what I mean about kind of um, calling out the perpetrators. They're not kind of men who couldn't help themselves or didn't realise the damage they were doing. I really thought a girl or a boy was saying yes, but they were definitely saying no. They know exactly what they're doing. And they damaged so many lives. And that's why I have very little sympathy for a perpetrators. I've none. And they will kind of say um, that some perpetrators have been abused as children. Some have. But 50% haven't. And if you think about the majority of those who are abused as children are women. They don't sexually offend. You know, I think women in general, if we're going to abuse children, we do it um, emotionally or physically. But this is the research by um, those who run perpetrated programs. Very few women were sexually abused. So it doesn't necessarily follow that myth that if you've been abused, you'll grow up to abuse. And it's quite damaging because we've had some amazing young men in here who, um, one young man who had a, a child and he was so happy with his family, so happy. Um, with his partner and the child, but he found as the little one got bigger, um, even up to kind of four or five months, he was afraid to bath her because it came into his head, oh my God, I was abused, I might become an abuser. Now, he'd never shown any, um, any thoughts, any ideas about abusing children, was never interested in children, but you know the way something got into your head and he can't get it out and his relationship and the whole thing was collapsing until he came in here and then... You know, you kind of work through all this with him first and the risk assessment kind of first because there's no point in one of us saying, "Ah, for God's sake, sure, you know, you haven't shown any interest in children. You really have to kind of go through it bit by bit so he knows it. And so we know it because we're not going to work with perpetrators and we're not qualified to work with perpetrators. Yeah. There's a lot of damaging myths out there, really damaging myths out there. What are some of the myths that you hear all the time? Well, besides the usual one that it was her fault and that she was drunk and she can't remember, or the big thing now it's spiking because we have a spiking hub um, where 
I think over 100 or more people in the first few months that we opened the spiking hub got on to us, filled in a form, told us where they were spiked and are very concerned about being spiked, both young men and women um, in different venues around the city. Um, and as regards to some of the guards and some of the venues, spiking doesn't happen. They've just taken too much drink or they took something else and they're not really telling you the truth. And, you know, I find with people I see, they will tell you whether they're 10 pints and... and can't remember anything, but they know if they've one or two and then they just can't move or they can physically feel something happened to them, but they can't move. Um, so we are trying a spiking campaign. We're trying to get um, a hospital in Cork to come along with us that will test people. Like there's a woman in the UK who was spiked and she was able to test herself because um, she worked in a lab. And from that, she developed a kit and all the pubs around kind of where she is have this kit. So if somebody wants to get tested if they're unsure, They'll get tested. And I'd love to do that in Cork because um, I would love it to show up. Well, you're wrong, Mary. Um, there isn't spiking going on. That'd be brilliant. Mm. But let's find out. Let's stop this bloody cover-up of kind of, um, it's not happening, but we're not prepared to kind of put our heads together and, you know, do a pilot even for six months, which I think would be amazing. Yeah, do you get much opposition in that campaign to bring test kits into venues and pubs? Yeah, it's kind of up to us, you know, as an organisation to see if we can get somebody on board, see if we can get, like, funding. I find, we find it somewhere. You know, I don't kind of stop something because we haven't got funding, but to get a hospital on board, to get somebody else on board, you know, to get the guards on board, they will come on board and they say, yeah, test, but get the venues to get together and say, look, we're really on board with you. They won't do it because it's like, I'm not saying it happens in your venue, I'm saying it happens everywhere. And so people coming in, it's not kind of that your venue is extra bad or your venue um, is kind of magnetically calling them all in. Because I know what this woman has shown in the place where she lives, where those posters up kind of saying, um, spiking isn't going to happen here or we're watching you. The spiking really went down because people were aware and they were watching. And I know there's dipsticks you can get, but they only test for two things. So if I was spiking out, I wouldn't use those two things that have been tested. I'd use something else. So it, it is serious. Yeah. So venues are kind of against it for insurance reasons, or make it the place make it a bad name, things like a that. Bad name. I yeah. don't think they're bothered about insurance. And I mean, the reality is, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. It really is because I think punters going in would love to see well, this venue is taken seriously. And this venue is going to be part of the pilot to test is spiking happening or not. I think if I went to a venue where young people had come across them, um, saw that, they'd say, this is brilliant. Is there any plans for the pilot to be rolled out soon? Or? Well, we're negotiating with a hospital, with the Mercy Hospital, who seem to be very keen and very involved. So mm. we're trying to get them involved. So you're in touch with the hospital? Oh, do, we're in touch do, with the hospital. Do they see a lot tried. of spiking coming in? No, but I mean, they would have the know-how to do the testing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's hear another tune, Mary. Okay, I think um, since I've been going to different festivals, I've become aware of different music. Like, I would be kind of real old-time at music. And, you know, I suppose in my life here, I'd kind of work weekends, I'd work different nights, I'd go to different things, which is kind of my choice. But um, when we started the Safe Gigs campaign, I kind of started to see different artists in different ways that I wouldn't have seen for a long time. And one of them is a Cork woman, Lyra, who is a very much a Cork woman, who's very much her own woman, who dresses how she likes on the stage, and she gives it welly. Um, and I think she's an amazing woman, and she has a great song, and it's called New Day, and it really is for people to show, because I think she's been through her own um, struggles back and forth, trying to get a career for herself. Um, and New Day really hit me. Thank you. 
this morning Mary Crilly from the Sexual Violence Centre in Cork Mary you mentioned Safe Gigs there previously before the song can we talk about that for a little bit mm-hmm. Safe Gigs was something we came up with during Covid it, it, we didn't like I don't sit at home um, and think what I do next to do I'm wiped or I'm doing emails at home or that kind of stuff and like what I'm trying to do at the centre now for the next two years is get it in a place where anybody can walk in and take it over like I made sure we've governance all that kind of stuff is in place and all the policies and procedures because I'll be 70 in two years time so it's about um, I don't expect whoever takes over to run it the way I did you know to give it like their life but we would have had people coming in who said that they're being abused at venues and abused at festivals and not just the punters, it was people, musicians, and it was some of them were traditional musicians and various kind of people where, you know, the myth again would be, God, it probably only happens at the rock ones or the heavy gig ones, but it happens everywhere. So I would have, we had just finished a big campaign, fixed it campaign, which took up quite a lot of time. And I remember thinking, please, no, please, no, um, I'm not going to do another campaign. I'm just too tired and this would need a lot of energy. And then, the other part of me said, well, if I'm aware of it now, um, let's just give it a go. Let's just give it a go. Yeah. And we developed a charter, um, which is about, you know, no racism, no homophobia, all this kind of stuff for venues. And I gave a presentation to the Department of Justice and they liked it. They took it on. It just shows you how good if you have a few good PowerPoints, how much impact that can have, because we really didn't have much, much stuff together. And... They're kind of taking our charter and adapting it. So by January next year, if um, a venue doesn't adhere to the charter, which we brought up by Department of Justice, they lose their license, which is great. It means anybody going into a venue, if they feel they've been treated differently or badly, they can complain. The same way guards can kind of um, go and object to a license if somebody's open for four in the morning, that kind of thing. So then... I know if we started this 10 years ago, it would have gone nowhere because but we're in the life of nighttime economy where there's lots of stuff happening for nighttime economy. But during COVID, um, what myself and Dola, who's downstairs, who she's the only one who does this kind of stuff with me as well as working full time, we did a lot of research on it. I'm a firm believer in um, let's work together. 
I'm a firm believer of if you clap yourself in the back and say, I'm the only one who's doing this and I'm the only one who could do it the way it's been done, you're doomed to failure because people out there are trying to make a difference. I really believe that. So we came across people in um, the UK who were doing similar stuff, people in Europe before I knew where I was. I was invited to Zurich to a huge big um, conference on nighttime economy. This was just full of DJs and cool kind of guys. Um, I had a ball because they were looking at me and I went over to every last one of them. There was hundreds there. And I said, do you want to know who this other one is? Who are you looking at? And then I managed to give four presentations on spiking. You know, so this, for the safe gigs, we go around. Justice then gave us 15,000 to pilot it. And then Festival Republic, who run um, Slane, and they run, and Shane Dunn, who runs Independence, would be a really good supporter. Um, so they asked us to go to Longitude last year, and they asked us to do Marley Park and Festival Republic and Independence, um, which we did. I mean, like I spent last weekend... Um, on my feet for hours up in Longitude because we decided in our wisdom, long, Longitude has about 30,000 young people, that I'd bring temporary tattoos. I knew it would work because I'd gone to schools, I know it works. And I remember on the Sunday, um, I think I stood for six hours putting on temporary tattoos without even managing to get away to get, use the bathroom or have a bite of bread or something. But the kids were there and they were kind of liking us on Instagram or following us and they were saying, what's this about? You might have only had them for five seconds. But even I find with young people, if you have them for half an hour, you only have their attention for five seconds, so it made no odds. Um, and we're doing independence now next. And then from that, you would have had bands like the Mary Wallopers or the Gilla Band, which were seen as kind of full-on. I think that surprised a lot of people that they asked us to go to their venues and be present while they were having gigs. It wasn't... I think the expectation was it'd be just young women who were having kind of things that would want us. But the men are coming out very strongly um, and kind of saying, we don't want this. We don't want this at our venues. We want somebody there highlighting it, that we want people come to see us to have a good time and have no messing. So that's the impact it's, it's kind of had. Yeah, what kind of feedback do you get from festival goers when you're... Oh, really good, really kind of... Um, like, say we went to Slane, and you know, it was very mixed, so you know, our parents coming down, really happy that it was there. When you're at the festivals, it's an open tent and anybody can mm. go in and talk to you. It'll look very well. Mm. Um, like say you know when we went to we were Dermot Kennedy and we were at um, Longitude then we'd always sit a tent near the end you know because very often then you have a lot of area there maybe a metal piece where you can kind of really put posters up put them up really well mm. not just kind of stuck with sellotape they look really good really effective um, so people can't read what's on the tent they can these are up all the time they can read it be mm. about spiking about safety about all sorts of things and do you have test kits there? no Anything like that? No. No. And do you have anybody presenting that might be... You do. Yeah, yeah. you do. Yeah. yeah. And we'd have people even who might say, like, especially with the young people, last week I want to go home, I'm overwhelmed. So we might just walk them out to a taxi or ring a parent or something. Because, you know, sometimes the medical tent can be overwhelmed or busy. So we can do... But we would contact them and say, is it okay if we do this? Because it is their gig. They are the people who are insured and that kind of thing. Because yeah. they'd come in, I lost my friend. When did you see her last? Ten minutes ago. Our young fellas coming in, quite a lot of young fellas came in last week. They were, you'd know they mightn't have been the festival kind, but it all might have been a great idea. And then they were there and they were like, just can't cope. So they would sit in a tent for an hour or two hours, like leave them off till they decide they want to go home or wherever they want. They were doing no harm, do you know? Let's take another song, Marie. Okay, I think um, who I met a couple of years ago and I was really blown away by was Tula McKay. And I was looking at different songs. I'd seen her in Electric Picnic last year and I saw her in an amazing um, 
show she did over in the Kino a year ago. It was kind of a one piece. It was incredible. And I was looking at her stuff last night to see her different sounds because they're all very different. And I came across one that I hadn't heard and it was called Don't Let Go. And it really was about kind of don't let go of yourself. Things might change. Things will happen. And I'm not doing all these songs to kind of say to people um, everything's going to be okay because one of the terms I hate and I hear so often this kind of everything happens for a reason. I hate that term because your children abuse for a reason or that kind of thing. But um, people like her just inspire me. And I think she's a young woman from um, Midlands, I think, from Tullamore, and she's an incredible voice. Tuka McKay and that was picked from my guest Mary Crilly. You mentioned Fix It Ireland. Can tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this was um, another campaign we came up with. Um, I read a book by a woman, I just can't think of her name, the second, but I can get it for you, Australian woman who would have been fixing headlines in yeah. newspapers. Like I'd seen headlines for ages and I used to find, like, say, I read down the article, the article would be really good, but the headline was appalling. And it never dawned on me we could do something about it just never dawned on me that we could do something. Um, it could be like, say, the woman Chloe and her boys were murdered by the husband. It was three days before any newspaper mentioned her name and there was a hashtag then, her name is Chloe. Mm. There's stuff I saw about um, a young girl, a young child, she's only 14, 15, being uh, raped by three men in a hotel room in Dublin for drugs. And the headlines was, young girl sleeps with three men for drugs. She was raped by them. So we changed it, our kind of... Um, you know, a young girl raped or changed that to a young girl was raped or something. It's a matter of just changing it to look at the reality of kind of what's happening. And that's only a few of them. So we started fixing the headlines. One of the big ones I really want to change was the word child porn to change into child sexual abuse images. Because some of those images that I've seen in my lifetime, um, in the early years where you might be working with different police, you know, Thankfully, you wouldn't see them now, but there was a time when you might go to conferences where these would be shown. Um, and I don't think in a voyeuristic kind of way. And 
There are horrific images, and it is about children being raped and children being abused and children being damaged because of a, a, a man kind of on top of them. You can imagine physical damage that would be done as well. And I thought the word child porn meant nothing. And we just wanted to use the word child sexual abuse images. So we kept changing it. Like what we do is put a red line through it and kind of say, um, change the fear and change the words. And then we got onto the press ombudsman and got some research from Europe um, where things had changed and got their support. And they wrote out to the... Um, all the newspapers. Now, this took a good year of constantly. I see this time last year, we were maybe changing 10, 10 headlines a day. And this is at night time going home doing it. If we change 10, if we change two weeks, that's as much. Because what happened then is people, the general population, started writing into us and saying, did you see this one? Did you see this one? Did you see this one? And it changed. It was like years ago. Um, I know the way suicide was spoken about wouldn't be spoken about now because I think organisations like the Samaritans made sure they weren't, you know, committed suicide or as a crime or that kind of thing. Um, they don't use that language anymore. So it really was a matter of kind of, this isn't acceptable. Mm. And we need to call it what it is. And that was the fixed it campaign. Are we and getting on to uh, newspapers and oh, media? Oh, totally. Yeah. And getting apologies from the Times and from different newspapers. And some of them at the time, they hated us. Um, because we would just kind of cross it out. We had to fix this again for you lads. But if it wasn't for social media, we couldn't have done that yeah, campaign. Yeah. I mean, that was brilliant for social media. So the other campaigns, maybe not so well on social media, but that really worked because of social media. And it has changed. I mean, we're still keeping an eye on it, but we had great following and people really liked it and people kind of got, yeah, why should we say that? Why should you say, um, you know, a young girl kind of slept with three men when she was 14 and she was raped by three of them? Give me a break. Just for people who want to see it, who haven't seen it, it's Fix It Ireland. It's on it's all, Ireland, all social yeah. media, Instagram, yeah. Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Let's take another song, Mary. Joey, my, my, um, I do some talks and I do a fair few stuff in schools and stuff. And there's a union of students for second level. And I didn't know that until a few years ago when they asked me to do their stuff out in UCC on consent when they were all meeting online. There's a couple of hundred of them online. And then um, they asked me to do it again the following year. And I said, I really would like these kids to see other kids who make a difference, not just somebody like me talking about it. And I, I knew Mishnock. I'd come across Mishnock from the cabin a few times. They've been in here like playing because with the safe gigs, we also have um, young artists, male and female artists who have nowhere to have a gig. We'll kind of take everything out of this room and the room next door and have gigs maybe once a month for them. That's what we do. And Mishnock, who are young women from the cabin, who've written their own stuff about body image and about various kind of things. They've sang here and they did come out to that um, gig and used to see with me and they played everywhere. And I think they're they're amazing. Um, and I know, you know, all the songs I picked are all women because, um, you know, if I look at what's happening outside and I was always aware that most um, airplay is men. Mm. Even if you look at Slane, there's only ever been um, one woman. It's been there since 81. There's only ever been one woman who headlined the Slane in all those years, and that was Madonna. So um, when I came across Mishnock, because I'd come across the other young guys, the other young male rappers who were phenomenal, and then when I came across them, I thought they blew me away. So that's Mishnock, and that song shines through. It's them, and it's their life, and it's their life force. And it's, it just inspires me that young people are doing this. I just feel like, go girls, go for it.
That was Shine True by Mishnock and that was picked by Mary Crilly, my guest today. Mary, I wanted to ask you a personal question. Um, okay. It must be such an emotionally challenging job to be in every day for 40 years. Is it hard to stay positive and where does the sense of joy come from doing this work for you? It, it can be, you know, and mm. I would have had my years um, where I would have gone through feeling really low and I would have had years, you know, years ago when my daughters were small when I didn't know what I was doing um, and having panic attacks and that kind of stuff and at minimising but I would have gone through all that and just kind of I don't know how I got through it when I look back because it wasn't the same support as there are now or the same whatever um, and I think what inspires me like say somebody like Mishnock say somebody the young girls say after the Belfast rape case who charged over to the courthouse or tried to do something about it and people trying to make a difference I think um, in 2019 I was diagnosed with um, stage 3 bowel cancer and I had a stoma bag and I had, you know, a lot of surgery and it was quite painful. I remember, um, I think the first day of chemo where I was just having it, I could barely move. And I made somebody drive me to the polling station because one of the amendments was on or there was a vote on for, it was either same-sex marriage or the other amendment. And I remember watching the young people coming in from the airports to, to kind of vote and not just coming in, but others waiting outside to say, where do you want to live to? Do you want to go to Clonmel or Cork or where do you want to go? And the excitement and the energy and the interest, that inspires me. Mm. You know, that you're, that um, I've just met such amazing people out there who want to make a difference and sometimes they don't know what to do. I mean, I do think... Um, at times when I sit here, I sit at home and I think 40 years of every day, every day being on call, every day um, hearing about somebody who's been raped or abused, sometimes it can get to me. And sometimes if I think too deeply about it, if I think too deeply about children being abused or raped, it can overwhelm me. I can just feel like I'm drowning in it. Or if you look at, you know, some countries where the abuse is tolerated more than here, it's totally tolerated here. You can you can drown. You can really drown. But all I can do is keep going and saying... I'll do as much as I can do. But there's so many out there that want to do it with me. And the freedom of the city, I was blown away by that, that I really wasn't expecting that. And even the aftermath was um, a lot of people stopped me in the street who I didn't know, but they'd said a lot of things that happened to them. And But you'd nearly know by their demeanour that they had a lot of struggles in life, but they really felt this one was for them. Yeah. You know, they said to me that they really appreciated people who got up before, but they really felt this was for them. This was for the man and woman on the street. And that made a difference. They still stopped me and say, thank you, because I really felt um, a man there recently, he was in his 80s, um, stopped me and told me about his own abuse. And he said, I saw the freedom and I don't watch much things, but I felt this was for me. And thank you, because I felt I was being listened to. And that made a difference. What does the being given the Freedom City mean to you? I think it's incredible um, because I still see myself as somebody who just comes in here and plods away. I never saw myself as somebody who um, is a genius or inspires things or plans or, you know, sometimes I think I just react to stuff or maybe throw my best with a brave. I'd look at other people and say, God, they're amazing what they can do. I don't see myself like that and I'm not trying to be dismissive or um, you know, be coy or something. So it's it's huge. It's huge. 
I can't believe it. It really is huge. Mary, thanks so much for speaking to me today. I know you're a busy woman and thank you for all the vital work you do in our city. Thank you. Um, do you want to play us out with your last tune? I was thinking about Dolores O'Riordan and I was thinking about how she died and I was thinking about how tragic it was and how I still couldn't forget it. And, you know, um, and then I thought about her song Dreams and realised that um, the Irish Women in Harmony would have um, played that last year as a fundraiser for Safe Ireland, which is a great organisation which helps... Um, all those in domestic violence situations. So I thought, God, they're, they're singing it's Women in Harmony and it's for Safe Ireland and it's Rosa Reardon. So Dreams is the last one. Different.